Hi, this is Steve with the Diecast Movie Review Podcast, and I'm at the Monster Bash October 2019 at Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I'm joined with Bill Diamond, Bill Diamond Productions. How are you doing so far today, Bill? Good. I'm having a great time. We've had a chance to chill out ha- and talk and, and, and look at what Monster Bash is all about. It's just a wonderful organization of people that love the classics. I know. You get here, and it's just so much fun because people have so much common interests that you can go up to almost anybody and start talking to them about Frankenstein, Dracula, or any type of movie from that time frame um, from the you know, 30s into the 70s, and people are right there with you more often than not. And, and it's great to have those conversations where when you go back home, sometimes you know you have your friends that are into that and other friends that look at you like, eh, it's not my cup of tea. Yeah, but well, what they don't realize is that everything that came from our past is repeated in our future. Everything that's creative now, we and the people that are designing or creating those have grown up on the things that we're we're doing here at Monster Bash and the talents before us, the talents with us, and the talents beyond us, and that and that gives us that that unique, wonderful feel, and it it just goes to that grassroots of what great movies and even even movies that were B-movies, how fun they were. And the stuff that peop- the young kids are doing today, well, those came from those. You know, it's really fun. And I think, that, I think that's a problem a lot of people look at. They look at the next blockbuster, and not every movie back in the day had to be a blockbuster. You just went in there, had entertainment, and you had a good time. As you said, the B-movies, and I think they've been affected most in the current yeah, but you uh, got to realize a B movie only meant that their budgets weren't what the A movies were. It didn't mean that the talent or the quality was there, or the actor or anything like that. It just meant that they had a less, lesser budget. So, and that's all it meant. That's really it. Didn't have the, as much distributing. But really, after all, growing up, what are we watching? We're watching the movies that necessarily really didn't make it on the big screen for a long period of time, but we're still watching them. Yep, and, and those A movies back then aren't being watched as often in, a, in some cases. It's kind of interesting because people go back to right. where they want to have fun. It's, it's, it's what they grew up with and what they remember and what struck them. You know, people are still watching The Blob. It wasn't a, a, an A movie, but we're still watching it because we love it, and, and they've made a replica you know a repeat of that movie so apparently people came to that and they still go back to the original one so you know it's it it's it's like reading a good book you want to see the next one you want to see the next one exactly now for those that aren't familiar with what bill diamond productions does um, why don't you talk for a little bit about what, what exactly you guys do well, we're, we're a creative production team. Basically, what we do is pretty much everything from film to TV to movies to commercials to live shows to events. We have spent over 45 years creating and developing, learning from great people that were around us and always being involved in, in something fun. Now, we're known for our puppets, okay? Um, but we're not unique there. Of course, there was the great Jim Henson, who I who I knew, and and got to admire and and and, and be around. And you know, you all the artists from that have learned and experimented in the other things. So puppetry is just a tool that gave us a chance to be creative in many many genres. Oh, I know, and I and I've always loved puppetry. You know, growing up, Sesame Street. And then, of course, the Muppet Show, and then uh, Dark Crystal, and well, so well, on. Jim it's created a, a a unique style of taking a an age old art because it was way beyond Jim, and he revolutionized it. And then we, as as other artisans, whether it's makeup or effects or anything like that, use that form, whether it's been Stan Winston or Walt Disney or, um, you know, Rick Baker or Steve Johnson or any of the great people that have been out there, and there's many, many more that I can't even name, that have taken even puppetry or taken effects and have taken it to create good stories. 
and we've all had a chance of doing that. Um, people ask me, well, how to get me in puppetry? Well, I just wanted instantaneous stuff, and I loved Ray Harryhausen, oh. but Ray, you know, did that stop motion, and he had patience of a saint. So did Tim Burton, but you know, stop motion was like, oh, I don't have all day, you know, to me. But I could put a character on, and boom, done, instantaneous. That I go to the next. Um, they, you know, race and. Tim Burton are far more patient than I am, and that's an art. You know, I just wanted to do too many things, and I just never had the time for it. Yeah, I, I, I exactly agree with you. I don't know. I tried when I was younger. I think which most people did that watched watched the Ray Harryhausen film and tried to do their own stop motion, and it it takes the patience of a saint. Oh, it does, and it <laughs> it and there are some really great stop motion people out there that are doing it now young people that are doing it you know my whole career i have tribute the people that i've been around jim of course one of them we would not be doing the work that of puppets if it wasn't for what jim has inspired in all of us as well as what his kids have inspired in all of us you know uh lisa and brian and um cheryl and Heather ha and Johnny have done such incredible things with, with what their dad had led. And we can all just inspire from that, as well as Walt Disney. And, you know, we've all had a chance to enjoy that. And, and I have fun to be able to bounce from those worlds and still tribute the people that I look up to. And, and that's the great thing is you're doing something that you started with as a youngster and are still enjoying decades later and I think that makes you can just tell with um, it's sad that you, you're listening to us you're not here at a monster bash and if you can ever go to a monster bash that Bill Diamond's at and he's at most of them he brings a lot of his creations to the bash and it's amazing when you can see that the, the artistic creativity and the design and you're right there near and you're not watching them on TV or seeing them in the movies you actually are with just feet away from them or even sometimes closer to the, the product. Well, we try to give you a chance to see the characters that we created as well as the ones that have inspired us that we've been able to help keep that legacy alive like Jim's or, you know, the great work that Stan Winston did or the great work that uh, Rick Baker or any of the wonderful artists that I've got to know over the years um, and still carry on those great crafts. And I have many people that work with me that also help me, and I have a great team that work on that. And it's so much fun because we, if we didn't do what we do, whether whatever level it is, it's the fans that love it and they appreciate it, and we are doing it for them. You know, it's great to be admired that work or to carry on that work. And when they get a chance, it's the fans, at the end of the day, they're really the employers. They're really the ones that let us create. They're the ones that enjoy, and that's what we're working for. If people are just doing it for, okay, to get a paycheck, that's one thing. But if they're doing it for, the fans are our paycheck. You know, and that, that is special. And it is, and when, and I know when people come up to your booth, and I've seen other times, they see the gizmo gremlin and the other eyes just light up because everybody and, goes right to but it that's and that's other artisans you know yes. we get a chance to express that you know we've had a chance to touch in those worlds but you know there's great people like um you know uh joe dante who created gremlins and 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 all the people that work at mark dotson who did the voices for a lot of the gremlins you know and they're friends of mine and it's great to show their work i i have a pleasure of taking what other people have created adding it to what i do but also show them where this came from you know this was created by Jim Henson. This was voiced by Mark Dotson. This was a movie that Joe Dante did. This is a, a thing that Rick Baker did. And, and we're all fans, but I get to know these guys and get to know these wonderful people, men and women, that have created these arts. Steve Wang, who did the artistic 
painting or uh, of all this work. And those are what's great. I, I've found a very pleasure to work with Matt Winston, which is Stan's mm -hmm. son, and, and worked at the Stan Winston School of Character Arts. I did a thing on puppetry. And it's just great to be able to create all those things, see all the different people that have done makeup or effects or have done, you know, um, you know, creating great eyeballs for a character down to a sculpt of a toy, you know, and, and, and Stan gave us that and, and Jim Henson gave us that and Walt Disney gave us that and, and Matt has been away with his team, been a way to show those people the art and teach young people how to, to be able to do it and I'm very proud to be part of that team too. And, and that's what's so great about it because one of the things I love about movies when you have practical effects, effects that, or characters, with because a lot of times I think of the Muppets or the puppets as being characters themselves, they get to interact with something they're seeing right there being performed by people behind it, sometimes a one person, sometimes a full team of people oh, absolutely. to get to do that. And I think it really makes the performances just so much better. It's, it's the artistry. And what young people need to learn today is that still it's hands-on. It's not just done in the computer. I have to tip my hat to um, Lisa Henson and the, and the team out there that have now put the new Dark Crystal together. It, you know, and Brian Froud, who's given us those great images, um, to, to now pull puppetry to the way Jim did and to be able to do this new vision with a whole bunch of new young people. And, and that is great. The torch is being put out there. We get a chance, and I get a chance to go to here and, and, and pass the torch to new people, no matter what I've done or, or, or any of the other artists that we've talked about. And that's the creative. That's the excitement. You, your daughter, we've mm -hmm. talked, yes. and your daughter is wanting to, to do artwork and be creative and, and, and find her, her way to do that. And that is, you've got to look at our past of all the people that came before us. Yep. And, the, and the people that are doing things now and that next generation that continue that great work. And, and, that's, and that's what's so exciting because you can see things evolve and improve, not just in theater, but in film and television over the time. And it's because, as you said, the new blood, the new creatives take what was learned, what they learned from the people prior to them, embrace that and say, well, what if we try this and this? And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but the thing is they learn from it and then they bring their own vision to it. And that's when it really, when their vision's able to get out there and you're able to see that, it really, it's, it's exciting. Oh, it's inspiring. I mean, I've had a 45-year career that I love. I have a great team, great artists that work with me. We've done incredible work. But we're carrying on credible work that of the people that passed the torch to us or, or also worked with. You know, and so it's it's not one person, it's many. And it, it's great, and it all comes down to the fans. And it comes down, we watch you guys go into the movies, and you go out, and if you enjoy it, we're happy. If you, even if you criticize it, we learn from it. If, if we don't, we don't become better. We, nothing is a failure. Everything is a success based on what you can do. And I work in all the genres from fantasy to sports. I always tell people if I'm not doing sports, I'm, if I'm not doing sports, I'm doing fantasy. If I'm not, I'm not doing fantasy, I'm doing sports. So it, it, it's, it's fun to be able to express all of this. Now, one of Mikhail's favorite movies is Labyrinth. Yeah. And I know you were, you were involved in that, correct? I was involved with it on a, on a small scale. I mean, that's Jim. All right, everything that had to do with that era is Jim, okay? Um, I got a chance to do a number of things with his son, John Henson, and, and we knew a great um, juggle, jugglist, uh, you know, illusionist, uh, Michael Motion, who was a friend of mine and John Kahn's and Johnny Henson's. And Michael uh, was doing some great, work with John Kahn, some circus work in 1980, 
well, it was like 79, 80. It was going to be 80. And me and Johnny Henson were filming uh, John Kahn's and, and Michael Motion's work. And Jim had walked in, which is Johnny's dad, and just was, I think he was captivated in what Michael did. And we filmed it. And Michael and Jim later on, you know, invited me to the Henson Studios. And Johnny and I went down and we were doing this whole balloon thing and Dark Crystal was going on and I knew my way around an editor. So I started doing some specialty editing for him on Dark Crystal and Fraggle Rock on this Hi8 system. As well as helping document the balloons that were going in that John and John Kahn masterly did. And Michael was in that picture. So we went back and we did tests for Labyrinth of Michael doing the, the ball. Um, that's my involvement. There were many, many people that artisans that did many more things than I did. I just happened to be around it all. <laughs> and so um, it was nice to be a piece. And remember, everyone that does something for somebody like Jim Henson or Lisa Henson or the whatever, it's a team. And Jim was very good about that. And we learned a lot, even, even though the small part of time that I was even around Jim or Carol Spinney, who's a dear friend, the magic of what they did carries over to what you do today. And, and that's, that's, that's carrying that legacy. And that, that's one of the things, what we try to do interviews on our podcast, I try to avoid not only doing just directors and actors, but because it takes everybody to make a film, a whole bunch of people that yes. a lot of people don't really think about. I mean, sometimes you do hear about the composers, and sometimes you do hear about, like, Rick Baker and Jim Hinton, certain people that really rise to top Ray Harryhausen, but there's so many other people that work with those oh, individuals that we never hear of. Right. And, and my whole and point I, is, I, is everybody works together. And that's something that the Stan Winston School of Character Arts has done, was showing how the artistry of Monsters is a great show called Monster Palooza that um, Elliot Brodsky does, which shows the art of monsters and art of the people that work on it. There are many people, the people that put hair on the characters, the people that, um, you know, sculpt or draw or, you know, there's so many of them and that my, I, I've had the pleasure to meet and work with a lot of them and I am, always takes my breath away to see them all. And, um, and I think that's what's missed is that there's so many other people behind the scenes that don't get that, that credit. And that was something that was great that Walt Disney did Jim would take his time with anybody, whether you had five minutes with him, which you mostly got. Um, and he, he loved it. He had that vision, and he loved everyone's work. And there's so many, many people, just like in the new, that have done so much creativity. And that is what it's all about. Now, one of our loves... That my both my children have because as you know Michaela graduated in theater production she has a degree in that and Ben likes to act and little little house little shop little shop of hearts I don't know why I was thinking little house that's all right <laughs> I was, like, I was thinking, thinking some that's a totally different thing but little shop of hearts you and your team helped make Aubrey two Audrey two yeah. Audrey two and you've been doing that for how many years now? Well, I've been doing it for 35 years. Now, I there's original people like um, the, the, the original cast that did it and, and Alan Menken that created the wonderful music. You know him from The Lion King and Little Mermaid. Um, and on the original cast, you, you had um, um, other puppeteers that have done Little Shop. Uh, when... Little Shop went off Broadway. They remounted it at Westchester Broadway and a number of other theaters in the area. And um, they, at that point, it was new. You know, it, it was it was new. Marty Robinson created the original 
one, he's from Sesame Street, an, an incredible puppeteer and designer. And but you got to realize it was a 1960 black and white film, mm -hmm. you know that that was done that, and I got a chance to be with the original cast. So when I was passed the torch to do Little Shop, I wanted to change it up. I wanted to do something different with the plan. I I put the plan up a little higher and did my own thing with it. Never thinking that when I built my version for these theaters and they started touring it, that I would wind up performing it and building the plan and renting out the plan and still doing it for 35 years later. I always joke that maybe I have the Guinness Book World Record for performing the plan more than anyone because I have done it steadily for 35 years somewhere whether it's a high school performance whether it's college whether it was off-broadway whether it was a a, a a tour i have done it for 35 years straight and i tell you because it's here monster bash it looks wonderful up, up close and in person i mean it's just oh. and, and <laughs> it was great i did it in uh, washington this year which was my 35th year of doing little shop somewhere I would do two or three or four performances um, somewhere. And there's been many other puppeteers and other builders that have built it since then. But I was there right after they closed the, the show and then started doing it. So I was probably the first one, but probably the only one that I can think of. There may be others, I could be totally wrong, that have done it 35 years to date, every performance which we've mapped out. And I know you said this earlier when you had your presentation. How much does it weigh? Well, the one I built was 200 pounds. So when and, and the reason for it is that I'm a glutton for punishment. I really <laughs> wanted that character to have weight. I wanted to be able that when it threw its weight, it did. It, it felt heavy. It felt vibrant. It felt like it could take the, the city down. And... I, I wanted it to do that. It was not about, oh, geez, you know, let's wimp out on this. I give it all. And I'm 62 now, and I'm still climbing in that plan. I was going to say, it must be quite a workout when you're done the performance. Oh, I never <laughs> belonged to a gym. This is the, if you want the Audrey 2 weight loss program, you know, do Little Shop of Horrors, you know. I, I, that has been my gym all these years. I just climb in there, lose five pounds per night running the show. So I've never had to really worry about that. Yeah, I was gonna say, you have to be in shape in order to, to keep <laughs> moving all that around. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. But I mean, obviously you enjoy it, otherwise oh, I do. you wouldn't I be still, doing it for I 35 still years. <laughs> I still enjoy climbing it. I don't do it all the time, but I still like doing a run or two, especially when they get a great cast. In Washington, I just did it. It was a fabulous cast. They were all good. You know, it, it's not just about the plan. And we got a chance to work with the actors and stuff, uh, you know, about the puppetry and how the puppet was so vibrant. And, and they really got it. And when you get a great cast, the show, you, you could do the show forever. It's, it's just, it's so, I mean, I've really enjoyed both versions of the movie, the musical version and, of course, the Roger Corman original version. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, it's so nice that it's still carrying on as a musical where people can go and see the live Well, it's versions. really funny being here at Monster Bash, all about the classic movies. Little Shop of Horror is a B-movie. You know, it was a movie that Alan Menken and a bunch of guys watched because they grew up and saw this B-movie and they made a musical about it. But most people think it was a movie and forget that it was a, a play. And before it was a play, it was a movie with a very young Jack Nicholson. So it's been a movie, a play, then a movie, then a play, then a play, then a play, then a play. So they only remember this, the, you know, Steve Martin and all those guys. Yeah, well, Steve Martin and Rick Moranis. And yeah, yeah like that. right, right. But that's the movie. But it, it had 10 years of history before that movie was made. I remember seeing the original before I saw the musical, and I was just like... It, it, you can see where it took things in a different way, and and both they're two different films because one is one is no is not a musical at all, and the other one is. And, uh, it's, yeah, it's but what you got to realize is that the silent one is what Maury Estin saw. I'm not Maury Estin. I'm sorry, Alan Menken saw, and um, and decided to make it into a musical because he saw it as a, a film, 
Yeah. You know, so that's really fun. That's why I, mean, I love it. But I, I can, but you can enjoy both. So when people watch them, it's like you know they're two different versions of the same story, but both entertaining. Absolutely. And I, I mentioned Maury Essen. Maury Essen, I did his version of Phantom. So I created oh. that of uh, Maury Essen and Koppel. So I mentioned Maury because they did a great version of Phantom of the Opera, and I got to create the masks for that. I was wondering, I was going to ask you, what did you create for Phantom of the Opera? I created the mask. Robert Cuccioli played uh, Phantom. It was it was a New York premiere, and I got to do the makeup and the masks for Phantom, which was which was really a wonderful two-year project. So as being a Lon Chaney fan and a good friend of Ron Chaney, um, it was it was really great to, to be able to create a whole new look and and the version that Maury did which was an absolutely beautiful version I got to do the whole Lon Chaney style of full mask and we created I created 14 masks for the show and each mask had a different emotion which oh really you, which you, which was different than um, the, the one that's on Broadway now the masks were how he felt at the time and that was really great. If he had tears, it had tears on the mask. If he was enraged, it had wings and, and a, as a whatever. If it was, if he was happy and, and, you know, part of what we called the bistro, it was a very jewel type of mask. Uh, you know, if he was frightening, it was the skull mask. You know, so we gave him emotion because he had no face. So through his through the mask, I got the chance to create emotion, which is not necessarily seen in other versions of Phantom. I like that because it reminds me when you're when you're describing that of when I used to read Spider-Man comics growing up, and I still do. And they use his mask with the the eyes, we get bigger, smaller, like to show the emotion going on. Where technically, yes, they shouldn't be moving around. It's, I mean, the eyes should always be roughly the same on the mask. But the artist was able to rent, get the motion across, you know, from he's in the costume character. It's, it seems like the same approach. Well, that's what which it makes is. It beautiful. You see, when we would all watch Lon Chaney, he had so much emotion in the makeup that he created, and that mystery style, and it was silent. He had to portray so much. When you're doing a a, a musical on stage, and you can't see the actor's face. The white mask was just not enough. Mm -hmm. So fortunately, they gave me the freedom to create these alternate 14 masks that created motion in every mask he put on because he had no face, which was the idea. And that the mask showed his thought process and his emotion at the time. And that was a lot of fun, which you sometimes don't get in the other versions of Phantom. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, because I, I think that's rare. It's the first time I've heard about somebody changing the mask up in the Phantom of yeah, the Opera. Yeah, we changed all the masks. We and had 14 of them. And my daughter loves Phantom of the Opera also, and they did that as a, one of their high school productions. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was very successful for them, and she was part of the production part of that. I can't remember exactly what It's she the did. white mask they, they always remember. But even Cheney did it twice. You know, if you look at his mask, he had the one where... Um, he, you know, had a skirting front of it, and he changed the mask a couple of times. We had a really powerful moment, if I have the time to tell oh, you the story. Oh, go for it. When, when we did Phantom, um, Bob Cuccioli, who's a, a good friend and a fantastic actor, he also played the lead in Jekyll and Hyde on Broadway. Um, Bob, unfortunately, during the production we were doing, had broken his leg. Mm-hmm. during the, the hydraulic systems that we were going. And um, we had to skip um, a performance. We had to close one night, and then he had his cast put on, and they weren't quite sure what they were going to do with the show. So we all got had a production meeting, and we said, the show's got to go on. It's a, it's a great show. But what we could do. So the understudy, I said, let's take our masks out. They don't know what Bob looks like. We put Bob in the booth, up in the in the in the what we called the Phantom booth, in the in the Westchester Broadway Theater, and Bob sang and did all the work. Up in the booth, why the actor 
portrayed like Lon Chaney quietly oh. on stage. Bob did the singing. He mimed, just like Chaney did. Mimed the whole role of Bob. And Bob did all the singing. So there were two people playing Phantom. And so I recreated the mask based on Chaney, where I put a, a piece of fabric. If you look at the re original Chaney mask, he had a very thin piece of fabric over the mouth. So you couldn't see his lips. And so I put that into the masks for that night so you couldn't, if his lip sync wasn't correct to Bob's, you would never know. You'd just see the, the fabric move. Beautiful. And Bob, it was a magical night. It was, it was, I'll never forget it because it really felt like Lon Chaney was in the room. And Bob Cuccioli was singing on stage and this understudy was performing on stage and miming to everything that Bob was singing and the audience never knew what happened until the end and we spotlighted uh, the actor on stage and then spotlighted Bob up there you automatically thought it was the same person and it wasn't and that, that's the great thing about theater films TV is the um, ability to have that illusion the because that's that's the, the being taken away, but also being able to hide things. So the illness doesn't see it. Of course, then you, as you said, you pulled the curtain away and you showed there was two performers. But, I mean, it's so much with that that little bit of illusion, a little bit of um, misdirect, so to speak, or being able to make things look so good that nobody notices. And, that, and that's the art of television. It's the art of film. It's the art of theater. Is creating illusions so you transport whoever your viewer is, your fan, and they walk away with the love. The reason these characters have lasted so long in a show like Monster Bash, Karloff, Cheney, Lugosi, Price, is because they related to us. Mm -hmm. they, they, they caught something inside. It wasn't the fact that they were monsters and scary. It's that we connected with them. You know, uh, we connected with the characters that Jim Henson created. We connected to the characters that... Walt Disney created or any other artisan or, or or what I did or Rick Baker or many other people have done it's what you as an audience has connected with and we learn from that you know we we you know if I come out of the plant and you had so much fun with me performing that plant and keeping that plant alive then I've done my job for you to go oh wow that was great and we had fun you know in every art is is about achievement, receiving, and giving back. Exactly, and something you showed today at Monster Bash, and I was uh, I just loved creepy kids. <laughs> you brought one of your creepy kids, and I, I did take a little video of it. If that's or if you want when we put it up on Facebook, if that's fine. Mm -hmm. No, that's right. You. But I, I just love it. Can you talk about the creepy kids? Yeah, well, basically, <laughs> there's a there's a great show called in Horseman Hollow. It's Sleepy Hollow, and I happen to live in the Hudson Valley, and Terrytown is not far from us. So Washington Irving wrote the great story of the headless horseman. So the people that run the historical uh, at the Rockefeller Estates down there have run a, a show, a Halloween, you know, scare event, like uh, everyone that's around the country, of the Headless Horse, of the Horseman and Horseman Hollow. There's an art artist named Lance who I had met at Monster Blues and a number of others that said, hey, Bill, we want to do more than just actors. We're going to do something with puppets, you know, not just scary people in makeup. So they had this Ichabod, room that you had to walk through and these ghostly children which we call the creepy kids um, of that period of the eight, 1700s 1800s so we created a number of three or four creepy kids that glow they literally ghostly go in period pieces that are are puppetry run by puppeteers to move but you don't see the puppeteers and they creepily move and they don't have to do much but they it, it's just how we lit them and how we sculpted them and how we put their costumes so they glow at night and they're real but not 
so they're ghostly fathoms. We just built the headless, uh, the horse, just the front part of the horse, so it crashes through, and 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 scares the people that the headless horseman is through Sleepy Hollow. It's a it's a great way for them to get to see those things. So the creepy kids was just a fun design and using puppetry to create an illusion that they normally would not see. And like I said, for those up. When you listen to the podcast, go to our Facebook page, and there'll be right there about a minute clip of Bill puppeteering one of the creepy kids, and they're going to turn the lights out, and you'll see the glowing. And it's it was just really nice to see. I mean, it was because you talk about it, and you're like, hold on, let me go get it. And we're like, oh, yes, yes. Yeah. And it's, But those are obviously for an audio podcast, but I'm trying to give you a little bit where you can go and see some of these wonderful things and that, that Bill's done and his team. Uh, have created and you have a TV show that's you've been working on that's supposed to be coming out soon. Land of the Moonshins I saw the Moonshins on yeah, the, in the hallway and they the look puppets. wonderful the, the Moonshin characters were something I created in, in the 80s it was a comic strip and in a, in a regional paper and it was about these characters that live on the moon and their reflection of how earth looks at them and how they look at earth and um, we we created them in nine, uh, 79, 80. Um, they, of course, I was very influenced of later on being around Fraggle Rock, even though they were a separate idea before that. Mm-hmm. And I showed it. I showed the Land of the Moonshins to Jim, and he really liked it, but he felt they were needed a little bit of a different look. And I kept that in mind. It was a great... You know, Jim was being honest. It was a great thing that I took in. And I had played with it over the years. We did it as a live show. We knew people liked it. And um, it was, what, 35 years later, I turned around and I said, you know what? I think because of the internet and all the things that are out there, it's great to have this third opinion from another planet that's so close to Earth, that's influenced by Earth and everything it does you know, to bring the Moonshins back. So the, t- the team and um, wonderful pe- uh, puppeteers, a great sculpt- sculptors like, and customer like Tammy, who has worked with me on, on, on the puppets, and Jude and um, Alex and Mark. And I love mentioning my crew because they, they put so much into it, um, creating these... and creating these wonderful characters, Sage, puppeteering them. And we're slowly working on it at our own pace, built a wonderful set, put some stuff on YouTube, and it's slowly getting there. And what's great is that the characters give you an influence of how Earth, as well as quirky as we all are, on whatever side of the... the the, the world you live in or, or environment or political aisle or anything like that the Moonshins have a twist on it and it all comes down to just enjoy life and, and, and live your life and even though we're looking down at you and you're looking up at us that's really what it is and, and I've had so much fun creating them 35 years ago and now bringing them out in a world that I think it's time for them. I think so too. And a lot of times, theater, TV, movies again have so did a lot of social commentary over the years. When you look back, it gives you that that snapshot of what times were like back when those things were made. And sometimes things are timeless and they carry through. And those themes are still important today, as they were when those creations were made 50, 60, 70, or 20 years ago. And I think that people miss that, you know, and they, they sometimes don't realize how important certain things are in our public conscious. And we also get it very busy in our world. So the nice thing about all of it is that through this, this world, we get a chance to, to show you how, you know, simple one thing may be, you know, whether it's a flower growing or the earth looking down. You know, the moon's looking down on the earth or the earth's looking back at the moon. You know, it, it makes you think and, and realize that it really is a wonderful place to be, especially at Monster Bash. 
Oh my! This is I've been to Monster Bash. This is uh, my first October Monster Bash, but I've been to several in June, and it, it, it's all like it's like you said, and I've been saying it's always fun to go to. But it's, the October one is, is is interesting because it's 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 kind of a different feel, mm-hmm. but it's a fun feel still, and it's just it's all family oriented. I mean, it just, is very family oriented. Ron Adams and his team put on one of the greatest. It's like the greatest smallest little show on earth you know it's one of those things it's it's just a family of of a group of people that have this passion for these characters passion for the actors and it's nice to see like people like donnie donovan um come who played a little kid and then was the voice for bambi and a little kid who played the uh, on frankenstein and to hear you know and i've got to know donnie over the years and um and work with him and and just to see all that when you whether you have Butch Patrick come here or you have Felix Silla come here or you have any of the um, you know the great actors that have worked in all these films uh, or TV shows come here um, and it's it's really nice to 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 be around them and see what's what's like. I've do shows all over the country, but no matter how big they get. The hardest with the small ones. Now, there's two things I want to make sure people understand. I almost, I'm almost remiss to say you're a multi Emmy Award winner. Yeah. For a lot of it for the Yankees for the Yes mm-hmm. Network. Yes. I didn't know if you wanted to share anything with that. Well, what what, what's what's interesting to do with Spy? I always tell a joke with everybody. I, I from my world with television and production is a is a creative process. No matter whether you're doing car commercials or you're doing, you know, sports or you're doing fantasy or art, the fact that you can move through these elements and and take what you from one genre to another, uh, I've been very fortunate to work with a great team like the Yes Network and the Yankees, and they have the the imp, the imagination to create great things for their fans. And so I have been able to help them take what I know from these industries and create it and put it into the sports world to make magic around them. The players are magical to begin with, but when they have a surrounding around them that is magical and practical, it, it, it's been something that I've been able to create and, um, and they've seen it. So it, it's different for somebody who has come from one part of their genre to move into another part of the genre and 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 look at it creatively and I think that's what they like and that's why I enjoy doing all that um, I'm not necessarily a sports fan but the fact that I can create their environment of what the sports fans want to see that's what I like to do and Bill was kind enough to show me prior to our interview some of the different things he's done for the Yankees and it's just really neat you know one of them he I don't know if it's on. I don't know if you have it on YouTube. Oh, it's all over the place. I, I couldn't place. even find out where it is. But yeah, so you could look there. it up. It's imagery that probably all the fans have seen, just didn't know where it came from. Exactly, but one of them, it, it was inspired from the Frankenstein type thing, where the, the Yankees wanted to do a Frankenstein kind of motif, and he showed me with the the picture of it, and it just really has that. Well, that vibe. it was funny because when I was doing the Yankees, uh, the NY logo, we called the NY logo which is there they needed a three-dimensional logo that they wanted to stand by so I and they love the steel look because you know train stations near Yankee Stadium and everything yeah. so I happen to be going with a group of friends to the last day of, of Frankenstein's 200th anniversary of Mary Shelley's book down at the more uh, the um, J, uh, the Morgan Museum in New York uh, JP Morgan Museum and the book was there, and I was like looking at it, and, and I was like, you know what? What if I Frankensteined the logo? You know, like steelwork, but Frankenstein's parts. And so I did. I took the NY logo, and I, what I call, Frankensteined it. Took that monster kid that I am, and Frankensteined the logo. And it was... Most people probably wouldn't know. They just thought it was a cool logo that was very retro. But really, it was bolts and patchwork. And yeah. 
But it was the NY logo. So I call it, I Frankensteined it, and they <laughs> loved it, and the players loved it. And when you showed the pictures, I was, I, I mean, I said, go back to that one. I said, oh, that is just, and that was the one that drew, the same thing, the 3D NY logo, as you call it. Yeah. And it just draws the eye right, right. to it. And, and so most amazing. people just say, wow, you know, it's, it's, it's that turn of the century. It's that time period where Frankenstein came out. It's that 30s and 40s at Steel, which the Yankees had become. So here's the monster kid taking sports and putting them both together. And it worked. It just makes me want to see a, a, a monster baseball team. You imagine Frankenstein being the cleanup hitter. But he did. <laughs> if you go back to history, Boris Karloff did a on, I don't know if it was with the Yankees. I could be wrong here. But he did, maybe it was the Dodgers. I'm, I'm not sure. But he was on the field walk, uh, going from first base to second base as the Frankenstein monster. You can look it up. Oh, cool. I have to. Okay, you'll have to look it up. So Frankenstein, the monsters in baseball, were connected before because Karloff did it. And it would be funny if it was, if it was the Yankees. It would be like it all just... There he goes. The synergy. Yeah. So I knew that that took place, you know, because I've seen it from when Sarah and Karloff and I were together. We did a whole thing on Boris, and it was a whole baseball thing. So I just did it again, but I just built it into this logo. So you'll have to put that on your on your website. I have logo. to find it and then put it on there. Well, I'll send thing. it to you. Oh, that'd be great. Now, the other thing I'd be remiss about mentioning, you have a, a co-star. Oh, Gorgo? Gorgo, who goes, he's, every, he's a monster bash fixture. You always bring him. And, of course, he has recently an award-winning, Yes, as, as I heard I, him saying recently. Gorgo, we won the, the, the 2019 Telly Awards for Gorgo's Christmas Carol, narrated by Vincent Price, which we did a, 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 a puppet of Vincent. Victoria um, showed us the... The narrative and thought it was, you know, of her father had done a 1948 version on television that played, I think, 1950, of of Christmas Carol that nobody really really knew he did. Um, and so we thought, well, this is a great vehicle. Uh, Victoria, we built um, Vincent as a as a puppet character. But we were trying to find some. We used him on a, a thing that Mark Dotson did the voice of Vincent, which was a great rendition. And that's when Victoria said, I have this rendition of Christmas Carol that my dad did. And so we were like, oh, this is great for Gorgo to play Scrooge. And so we won the 2019 Telly Award. The team won the, the award uh, for Gorgo's Christmas Carol, which was a 20-minute film based on Vincent Price's 1948 narration. Are you worried about that going to Gorgo's head? Because he's, he's starting to get, he was starting yeah, to get a little prima you know, donna he's there. he's sitting over there right now with, <laughs> wrapped around the award. You know, he's like, eh, you fed Emmys, who cares? You I have, have a telly. Yeah, so, so he's saying, like, you know, you have, you have two Emmys, and he's like, well, I got a telly. Where's your telly? And <laughs> Well, I, I have another telly, but you don't even talk about that one. Well, he has selective memory. Yeah, he does. <laughs> it's all about Gorgo. And I think you mentioned you have other projects you're going to be doing with Vincent Price well, or Victoria, Victoria Price. In a yeah, sense. Victoria has a whole bunch of other wonderful pieces that her father had had done and that we will make into other Gorgo adventures narrated by Vincent. And it's just a great way of getting the wonderful um, narratives for, that Vincent have done on all these wonderful stories that the fans never knew he did. It also introduced a new generation, just like when we built uh, Boris K. Frankenstein for Sarah, uh, and using, you know, and introducing Boris or Vincent to a whole new generation that may not know him outside of um you know michael Jackson's thriller exactly and is the christmas care available on youtube also um you can see it on the bill diamond um youtube or facebook page it will be released as a specialty uh which victoria does an appearance in she does a cameo in it and we'll be doing a number of others of those and they're a lot of fun 
Because I know I'm, I'm a big Vincent Price fan. I interviewed Victoria Price, luckily, back in August of this year. And she's just wonderful. And just to have new Vincent Price material in a sense, you know, it, it, utilizing things that people don't know about him anymore and taking it and putting it to out to the new generations. That, that is something I know I'm excited about. And I know other monster kids are going to be excited about. Uh, you know, it, it's great to be able to take these characters, tribute the classic monster fans, as well as we always tribute um, Jim Henson and many other artists across the... It, it's been, they've been part of the fabric of what I am. They've been part of what I do. Um, they've been all dear to me, and it's nice to be able to bring it to fans that may not know who any of these people are. And, Bill, um, what, anything else you want to talk about that you have coming up that you're doing? Well, you I think if anyone down? out there has not ever been to a Monster Bash show, they need to come out here. They need to see, like in June, the Witch's Dungeon is here. It's going into it's in its 53rd year. It's going to go further. Um, Cortland does an incredible museum. Ron Adams does an incredible show. And all the team here at Monster Bash. And it's so, it's an honor to be part of the Monster Bash family. And I can only say I agree exactly with everything you said. If you had had a chance to get the Monster Bash in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, basically, come out. Um, it's, it's going on. Well, the time this goes out, the October one will be over. But the June one, I think, is June 19th through the 21st. And it's supposed to have some of the actors from the Monsters TV show. Oh, yeah, show. Butch Patrick will be here. Pat Priest will be here. Cortland Hole will be here. Um, I, w I will hopefully will be here. Um, and um, it's just a wonderful show, and you all need to come out and, and see it. All right. And thanks again, Bill, for your time, for your... Uh, Come over here and let us do this interview Anytime. with you. Anytime. It's great to be here with you. All right. Thanks, Bill. You got it.